Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Mark Hyman is the head of strategy and innovation of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, board president for the Institute for Functional Medicine, a 12-time New York Times bestselling author and MBG class instructor in our landmark functional nutrition program. He's back today to discuss his latest must-read book, Food Fix, how to save our health, our economy, our communities, and our planet one bite at a time. Mark, congrats. Thank you so much. So great to have you here. I think this is your third appearance on the it podcast. Could be. Third time's a charm. Third time, and this will pro- this will be your thirteenth New York Times bestselling book. What a feat. From uh, your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, very the most important book you've ever written, Food Fix. How it to is. save our health, our economy, our communities, and our planet one bite at a time. So let's start. You talk a lot about soil, and there are a couple of statistics that just really jump out in the book Mm. in not Mm -hmm. a good way. One of them is we lose 2 billion tons of topsoil a year. Yeah. How is this happening, and why is it so critical? Like, why should we give a crap about dirt? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, if we want to eat, we should give a crap about dirt, because we're losing the soil that we need to grow our food in. That's primary. And the way we're growing food destroys the soil that will destroy our ability to grow food in the future. In fact, we have lost one-third of all our topsoil in the last 150 years, and it's projected by the UN that we're going to lose all of it within 60 harvests. Now, 60 harvests, hopefully I'm going to to be 120. I'm going to see that in my lifetime. Wow. <laughs> That's scary. And certainly my kids and grandkids will see it. It's, it's a crisis. And what I was shocked to find out, aside from the fact that we you know lose an area the size of Nicaragua or North Korea to desert every year, is that 30 to 40% of all the greenhouse gases now in the atmosphere, which is a trillion tons of carbon, 30 to 40% of that is from the soil, comes from the destruction of our soil through our current agricultural methods of extractive agriculture that's destructive to the soil, that kills the microbial life, that overtills the soil, that put chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides on the soil that kills the microbial life. In a thimbleful of really good soil, there's more life than there have been humans ever existed on the planet. <laughs> so so the the bad news is we've lost the soil. The good news is we can actually fix it and make more soil. And it's such an exciting area we're going to get into. But I, I think people just don't understand that the very methods of agriculture are destroying our ability to grow food. There was a great uh, picture in Time Magazine recently, a climate article, where they showed a field in Iowa which had been flooded. Now, when, when, when you see the flooding, why does that happen? It's because the soil can't hold the water. If there's no organic matter which acts like a sponge, organic matter being mm-hmm. carbon in the soil from the plant roots and all the microbial life. If, if that's not there, the soil can't hold water. And, and, and so it, it just basically sits on the top or it runs off. And so these fields were completely flooded. There was a million acres destroyed by you know, all the flooding in the Midwest last year. And there was this picture of a corn silo that had completely collapsed under the, you know, in the flood, in the middle of this flood. And I thought, how ironic is that? That the very corn... And the way we're growing it is causing the climate change, mm-hmm. and it's also destroying the corn. <laughs> right. And so we're in this sort of terrible cycle of extracted, destructive agriculture that produces 
processed food that kills Americans, that kills people around the world. 11 million people die every year from eating the food that we grow in this way. So it's, it's, it's bad for the environment. It's bad for the climate. It's bad for humans. It's bad for the animals. It's just bad news, and it's totally fixable. So talk a little bit about the connection between healthy soil and healthy food. Healthy mm. food that's more nutritious. It's not just about you know doing the right no, thing. No, it, no, there's no. a connection with regards to health. A complete, completely. I mean, you know, the the microbial life in the soil helps the plant extract nutrients from the soil, minerals, and all the nutrients that are in a plant. So if you look at the nutritional quality of even plant foods. If you're a vegan and you're eating broccoli or you're eating beans or you're eating whatever, the nutritional density of those foods is far less, 50% less minerals and nutrients than it had 50 years ago. So in 1970, when I was 10, broccoli was more than twice as nutritious as it is today. Wow. And, and I'm like, and so, so we are destroying the ability of the soil to provide nutrition to the plant. And you can put all the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, on the soil, but it doesn't help the plant have a dense nutritional profile. And then the foods that we grow in this way through this monocrop uh, industrial agriculture are certain seeds that have been developed to produce high yield, mm -hmm. to be resistant to various chemicals or GMO uh, uh, products that actually resist you know, herbicide damage, but although you need more and more herbicides and more and more of this. That when you do that, um, you know, the plant can't extract the nutrients from it because there's nothing left in the soil. You're literally killing the soil. So it's a difference between dirt and soil. Dirt is right. lifeless and dead. And soil is rich in microbial life and mycorrhizal fungi and all these incredible nematodes and all kinds of stuff you never heard of that actually is critical for providing nutrient-dense food. So can we get back to 1960 nutrient-dense broccoli? Is there hope? <laughs> yeah, so here's the sort of coolest thing that's happening. I, I, even when I started writing the book uh, and researching it, it, it just was in its infancy. But now there's so much about regenerative agriculture. People are like, what the heck is regenerative mm -hmm. agriculture? Well, is it organic? Not necessarily. Organic can be bad, right? You can grow organic in a way that is destructive also. And maybe you're not using chemicals in the same way, but you're probably using factory farm bone meal on your organic vegetables, uh, which can have all kinds of residues of stuff on it. You may be using big monocrops. You might be using tons of irrigation, tillage of the fields. All those things are destructive. So, so regenerative agriculture goes a step beyond that and says, you know, how do we restore ecosystems, right? We, we want to restore... And it's called agroecology. It's uh -huh. called, you know, all kinds of things. But holistic farming or whatever you want to call it. I don't care. But the point is that it's, it's, it's a specific way of growing food that actually replenishes the soil. It makes the soil able to hold water in a tremendous way. For every 1% organic matter in the soil, you can uh, hold 27,000 gallons of water. So you won't have those floods. You'll be drought resistant, flood resistant. It increases biodiversity of the ecosystem. So you'll see increase in pollinator species like bees and butterflies and insects and all this incredible, even natural life, you know, rodents and bugs, all kinds of like just normal ecosystems, which through traditional agriculture, you're, you're actually destroying ecosystems. So even if you're eating plant-based agriculture, you're killing 7 billion animals a year through just the very act of, of destroying the habitat of moles and gophers and rabbits and birds and insects and all that. So, you know, either if you're vegan or not, you're still killing a lot of animals, right. whether you like it or not. And, and so regenerative actually is the opposite because it actually restores the ecosystem. It brings back microbial life. It brings back plant life. It brings back 
uh, animal diversity in the ecosystem, and it produces much more nutrient-dense food. So it's, 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 it can come in many forms. It can be, you know, intercropping, for example, of of animals like chickens in a hazelnut forest, or can, that's called silvopasture, or it can be, you know, having an integrated plant and animal farm where you're doing crop rotations where different crops put different nutrients in the soil. So, for example, if a cow is eating all these different kinds of grasses, they all have different nutrients, they all have different uh, compounds and phytochemical-rich things that actually give the, the cow much more nutrient density that, that you're eating from that, and also puts all the nutrients into the soil. You do cover crops, so you don't leave bare soil. You don't till the soil to so disrupt the microbial life in there. Cause it's, like, it's like ripping the skin off somebody every day, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's really bad for the soil. Uh, and it uses animals in a very specific way that actually moves them around like mob grazing, like like bison herds. Because bison herds, you know, we had we had more ruminants in this country before we came here uh, and started having cows in factory farms, buffalo, elk, deer, antelope. And there were far more of those. And they weren't causing climate change. They were grazing in a specific way that moved around uh, on the land and chewed down the grass halfway, moved on, peed poop, dug it around, and it, it built all the soil. That's how we got 50 to 80 feet of topsoil. And and so when you use these methods, whether, you, whether you're vegan or not, it doesn't matter. You need animals in these ecosystems. You can't just have a plant-centric uh, farm because it, it's, you can't build the soil in that way. And uh, what's, what's amazing is that the UN has said recently that, that in, in their report on climate change in the land, that if we took 2 million of the 5 million degraded hectares of land around the world that's been destroyed by conventional agriculture and we restored it using regenerative agriculture, which would cost $300 billion, which is less than Medicare spends every year just on diabetes, okay? right. and less than you know the total global military spend for 60 days. If we did that, we could stop climate change for 20 years. I mean, stop the progress and have yep. more time to fix it and figure out things. And we use this incredible carbon ta- capture technology that is able to store more than three times the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. It's available everywhere on the planet. It's free. It's been around for billions of years, and it's called photosynthesis. <laughs> it doesn't require any extra investment. And we have the technology. We don't need to invent anything else. And what's so exciting to me is that people are getting this. General Mills is... Committed a million acres to regenerative ag. Danone, and just a couple of days ago in the paper, announced that they were investing in regenerative ag by training farmers and paying for their conversion from conventional farms to regenerative farms. Uh, that's striking to me. You know, you hear Kellogg saying, we're getting glyphosate out of our cereal by 2025. These are all signs that the food industry is actually getting this and wants to do this. And the government is also trying to help a little bit too through policy change, but they're behind the food industry sure. on this. Well, it, it, it's huge. And when you have companies like General Mills, Danone, Kellogg's, the UN, change is happening. And, and that's that's a, that's a great thing. Yeah. And so when I think of regenerative ag, we talk about animals, that first comes to mind. But I also think about like, what about fish? What about what's going on in the water and sea? Because I'm more like a pescatarian these days yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah, sure. And so, well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of issues with fish. <laughs> I mean, first of all, fish is an incredible food. Um, you know, most of the world evolved on and around oceans uh, and, and seashores where most of the populations uh, lived historically and depended on seafood. There's half a billion people that today depend on, on fish and seafood for their for their uh, health and their food. Um, and by the way, the coral reefs are being destroyed and, and 
and those yeah. are because of climate change, and those are threatening these fish supplies. Uh, but we're we're mining the oceans. Uh, we're destroying our fish populations. I, I remember being in Nor- in, um, in Newfoundland where there was this giant cod like fish processing plant, and we, we went. You know, we had to get to this town only by boat, and it was like the sort of you know this cod fishing mecca, uh, and. It was like a ghost town, and there was like a closing sales everywhere. And there was, we went to the dock, and there were fishermen pulling up a few little skinny mm-hmm. little cod out of the water. And I was like, "This is terrible." So we've overfished the oceans, and, and specifically certain populations. Um, and and so we have to be very careful about what we're eating. And there are a lot of gr- great places like the Monterey Bay Aquarium, yeah. which you can look at. You know, what are the safe fish to eat? Clean fish, which is dot com which you can look at what are the sustainably raised or harvested fish so there's guides out there but you want to stay away from the big fish that mercury you want to you want to worry about the microplastics too that's a whole other thing mm-hmm. i don't know how bad that is for us but i do worry about it i think it's a you know there's you know some fish have significant amounts of microplastics from all the pollution that we have uh it, it's complicated you're buying patagonia and you put it in the washing machine and it turns you think you're doing something good because they invest in the environment and then it goes it's like and they're trying yeah. to fix this they're really working on this so it's a big issue. And I, I think that the fish consumption, you know, in a perfect world would be our main source, source of protein. But it, it, we need to have innovative ways of aquaculture. And there's an incredible uh, place called Veta La Palma in, um, in Spain, in the south of Spain near Cordoba. And I, I wrote an article about it because I made a visit there. And it, I, it was called Grass-Fed Fish. <laughs> and you can Google it and find it online. And it was, it was about how they took um, this estuary that had been drained to become a cattle ranch and then failed. And they brought in an ecologist, and they restored this estuary, and they brought in uh, an ecosystem specialist. So how do they restore it? And they put the water back in, and and life came back, and all these natural fish came, and they had sea bream and all these fish, and it filtered the water so it was completely clean. The fish had no toxins, no pesticides, high levels of omega-3s. The shrimp came in, and and they they basically said half of the shrimp and 20% of the fish were eaten by birds. (laughs) And so they measured the health of their farm by the... The health of the predators on the farm. Interesting. And and they these flamingos would fly 150 miles just to go eat the fish there, uh, and and they, the fish was so delicious and such high quality. And and Dan Barber, who was a chef in New York, sure. uh, actually um, uh, did a TED talk on this yeah. as well. And I, I think um, you know there are so many degraded wetlands and degraded estuaries around the world that we could restore these back into you know fish farms that that are extensive, not intensive farms. So they had 8,000 acres. They produced you know thousands of tons of fish, but it wasn't as you know as productive as you know a massive fish farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it actually restores the ecosystem and, and creates these incredible benefits. What are some of the basic things that someone could look for when they go shopping with regards to fish? So I love salmon. I always look for wild salmon. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, small wild salmon. I love Vital Choice, which is a really great operation where they go to Alaska and they get, you know, the smaller fish so they're not full of toxins. They're more nutrient-dense. And you see the color of these fish. I mean, they're like bright orange, dark, dark, dark orange. And that comes from all the algae and the plankton they're eating and i think i think you know that's a great source i think wild salmon is fine i stick i tend to stick with little fish I, like i call it the smash fish smash, yeah right. i love smash S- uh, salmon all right mackerel uh anchovies herring and sardines, sardines yeah and, and i, I mean like a, i don't like guy. those fish and my wife would never eat all that but i'm jewish i like kind of grew up on that <laughs> stuff so i love it and and i you know you can go to russ and daughters here in new york city and they have all that stuff. we go colleen and i take our dog we go every saturday there's one in the navy yard uh-huh. that's the key there's no line 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to come to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Oh, oh really? I, I think I just gave it away. Wait, there's a Russ and Daughters? There's a Russ and Daughters in the come Brooklyn on. Navy Yard. Well, I'm moving to Brooklyn. I didn't tell you, you that. You are? Yeah. We'll talk about that All later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, we, we have to be really smart about, about the fish, and I think... Um, I, I, I am concerned about what's happening in the oceans, and I, I think we can, we can uh, you know, innovate around that as well. So, you know, we all know processed food is bad for you. Mm. You know, we love Michael Pollan, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what's unclear to so many, why processed food? Yeah. <laughs> like, what well, is it exactly well, right. in the process of the processing or what's right. in the food that makes very, very it bad? Is it omega-6? Like, what, what, is, what it? is going on? Okay, so, so there's basically something called ultra-processed food. Right, because you know, if you make at home, you make a carrot muffin. It's processed, but right, right, that's okay because you know all the ingredients. They can, you know, you recognize the food. It's a carrot. It's you know, flour, whatever. Um, although I like more almond and coconut flour now, but but the this term ultra processed food is is about the uh, food made from ingredients from commodity crops, mostly corn, wheat, and soy mostly in the form of white flour, high fructose corn syrup, and refined soybean oil that get turned to all different sizes, shape, colors, and tastes of extruded food-like substances that if you covered the front of the box of a package and looked at the ingredients, you couldn't tell what it was just by looking at the label, right? If you get a can of tomatoes, it says tomatoes, water, salt, right? You get a can of sardines, it's olive oil, salt, and yeah. t- sardines, right? So the, the ultra-processed food is, is become 60% of our calories, and it uh, kills 11 million people a year, and I think that's conservatively around the world, and results in 250 million years of disability for our population every single year. And it drives diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cancer, dementia, autoimmune diseases, and, there, and, and there's all sorts of ingredients in ultra-processed foods. So the main drivers are the starch and the sugar, right? Mm-hmm. The high fructose corn syrup and the and the uh, and the refined white so flour. A lot of people know to look out for HCFS yeah. now. Yeah, but but even any right, even any sugar. I mean, you can go to Whole Foods and get into trouble too. So I think, but those are the raw materials for ultra processed food. And then there's all the other additives and ingredients like maltodextrin and and, and all the the various the kind binders, of, the binders, things the that fillers, give you shelf the gums. Life. Yeah, and some of these things are terrible, like the emulsifiers uh, right. uh, that are in processed food. Uh, like carrageenan and xanthan gum and all these things, they actually are are causing a leaky gut and autoimmune disease. There's really good data on this. And so it leads to tremendous amounts of inflammation, whether it's the omega refined oils that are oxidized easily, whether it's the sugar or the starch, which are equivalent. In fact, white flour is worse than table sugar uh, in, in terms of its effect on your blood sugar. And and so these become it's become our culture, it's become our diet, and it's become what's normal. And and and, and we could, you know, go to great lengths to to um, actually have an impact by some simple choices, which is if food is made from these commodity crops that are turned industrial food, don't eat them. <laughs> I mean, right. it's a simple act, uh, and it doesn't take that much to figure out. All I have to do is look at the label, and if you're going to have flour, try to have it from other kinds of grains, heirloom grains, things that aren't basically commodity crops. Wheat flour is a huge issue. So let's just take wheat. Why is that bad? There's four reasons. One, the new wheat that we're eating is dwarf wheat. And the guy won the Nobel Prize. It's a a short, uh, stubby wheat that's drought Mm -hmm. resistant. It grows in tough conditions, which is good. And the guy won the Nobel Prize for it. But it's super high in starch. So it's actually 
cause amylopectin A, which is a super starch that raises your blood sugar more than table sugar. Two, when they bred those plants, they have way more gluten, which is why everybody's gluten sensitive, because they're way more inflammatory forms of gluten. And three, when the wheat is harvested, they spray it with glyphosate. Even though it's not a GMO crop, the glyphosate or weed killer basically defoliates the wheat so it's easier to get the kernels off. And that's right at harvest, so it's in the food. That's why your Cheerios have more glyphosate than the vitamin D or vitamin B12, which are added to it, mm-hmm. right? And that's why General Mills and Kellogg's getting off this stuff because they're, they're get, feeling the yeah. heat from that. And that was from the Environmental Working Group, which was great. And the fourth, and the and by the way, the glyphosate is bad for your gut and your microbiome. It causes potential cancer. It has epigenetic effects that I've seen in some animal studies that are terrifying to me. Uh, and it's in everything. And I, you know, I try to eat healthy and avoid, you know, processed food and GMO food and blah blah blah. But I, I, I check my urine for glyphosate, and I thought self righteously I'm going to be like fine. I, I was in the 50th percentile. Wow. And I was like, holy crap. And and so it's everywhere. And then the the fourth reason is when they preserve the wheat, they put in calcium propionate which is a, a preservative uh, for the uh, wheat once it's you know in the bag or the flour. And it's in all baked goods. And why is that bad? Well, propionic acid is a neurotoxin. And it, it affects behavior and is shown to cause behavioral issues in kids when they feed them bread without it and with it, it changes their behavior. So why kids mm-hmm. have ADD and behavioral issues and focus and hyperactivity. Uh, and, and in animal models, if you take propionic acid and you inject it into rats, they become autistic. <laughs> wow. They become autistic. And and, uh, and when you breastfeed, you produce this fat in the gut of babies called butyrate, which is very good for healing and all kinds of signaling molecules and reducing inflammation. When, when women uh, bottle feed their babies, so not to guilt trip them, it's just sort of the science of what this is. And it's because within milk and in, in breast milk, there are prebiotics that actually help fertilize the good bugs that produce this butyrate. And so we don't necessarily put those prebiotics in formula. We don't know about them, right? They're mm-hmm. not digestible by humans. They only fed feeding bacteria, which is so cool, I think. And the propionic acid uh, is formed by formula in the gut of babies, which may be linked to why we're seeing this epidemic of autism and epidemic of, of uh, ADD. I mean, it, I, these, are, these are things that are in the scientific literature that are so compelling to me that I'm like, why would you ever eat white flour that's, or any wheat, whole wheat flour that's made in, in any industrial way? So that's just one I'm example. I'm assuming you're familiar with our mutual friend Jeff Bland's like new super flower. He's, yeah, he's working on Jeff. Yeah, I was with him last <laughs> week. So what what uh, what uh, uh, we're talking about is Himalayan Tartary buckwheat, yeah. which is uh, exactly an ancient grain. <laughs> Escape my mind. I'm glad <laughs> it's you it's an ancient that. <laughs> grain that uh, he kind of came upon almost by accident, uh, and it, it turns out it's been you know used in the Himalayas for centuries and it's extremely protein rich extremely nutrient dense very low in starchy carbohydrate has one of the most phytochemically rich profiles of any food on the planet and yeah we should be all buckwheat you can have buckwheat pancakes and buckwheat bread (laughs) so one of the things that that you know i get my blood work all the time i want to talk about omega-3-6 ratio and how that could be for for people out there provide a little insight possibly having a little too many processed foods not enough wild salmon if you will so, so about 10, 10% of our caloric intake in, on average in America, and again, 60% of Americans' diets is ultra-processed food. And if you're eating it, you're definitely eating refined soybean oil, right? Um, 
And, and so why is that bad? Is it bad? I think, you know, there's a lot of conflicting research out there. So some research shows that if you focus more on plant-based oils, you're healthier, you live longer, you have less heart attacks. Um, and I think a lot of these studies are, are population studies, which, you know, it's challenging to prove cause and effect. Some are experimental studies. And I think the, the literature is sort of muddy. And I, I think uh, from my perspective, and I've seen this clinically because I test people, you know, some, and I'll just give you a, an example of a patient. And it clearly wasn't just the refined oils, but she had type 2 diabetes. I talk about her in the book, Janice. She was very overweight, 243 pounds. She was on insulin for 10 years. She had heart failure. She had kidneys were failing. Her liver was failing. She had high blood pressure, pile of meds. And we got her blood work done. And normally, historically, our ratio of omega-6 to omega-3s was anywhere from, you know, 1 to 1 to 4 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3s. Because we lived in coastal areas. We ate a ton of fish. Mm -hmm. All wild animals are full of omega-3s. All wild plants are full of omega-3s. So it was just a predominant fat of our diet. Uh, And we never really ate these until the last, you know, 100 years or so. And, And she had a ratio of 20 to 1. Which we know is not uncommon for people eating junk food and mm-hmm. processed food, and, and was that the cause of all our stuff? No, but I don't think it helped. And I think, um, and I think I would encourage people to eat. You know, first of all, I would not eat soy or corn oil because of how we grow those plants, mm-hmm. right? So that's sort of like how to avoid that. Just just for that reason alone, because you're causing climate change, destruction of the ecosystem, blah blah blah. Um, from a health point of view, I think you know we want to eat more whole food fats. So whether it's a fat from a nut or seed, better than the you know, oil extracted from it, right? Olive oil is a little different, but you know, it's un- unrefined mostly. It's extra virgin olive oil. Uh, expeller press, cold pressed oils are a little better. Uh, you know, organic is better. Non-GMO is better. I mean, canola oil, rapeseed oil has uh, is, is been really was abundant in omega-3s. A lot of that's been bred out of it. It's now a GMO crop, mm-hmm. which is sprayed a lot. So what are you getting as you're doing this? It's just, it's, it's a... Um, it's not something I have in my kitchen. I think uh, you're going to get these fats from your diet. Uh, if you eat whole foods, plant foods, you're going to get these nut and seed oils. If you eat nuts and seeds. <laughs> right. And if you eat beans, <laughs> you know. So you mentioned plants. Leads me to a great quote you had in the book. Plants are good. Meat is bad. Is nuanced. <laughs> yeah. Can, right. can, you, can you unpack that for a little bit? Yeah. Well, you know, just getting into the science of all this. You know, I've read over 700, 800 papers for this book. And... I uh, was sort of shocked to find that, that, you know, the traditional view, which is that if you're a vegan, you're helping the planet, and that's the best way to end climate change and so forth. Uh, aside from the 7 billion animals that get killed when you're eating plants, the, the, the story's not so simple. So, yes, factory farming of animals is bad. Mm-hmm. It should be banned. It's bad for the animals, bad for humans who eat the animals, and it's bad for the climate, the environment, just on so many levels. Uh, it's so destructive. But that doesn't automatically mean that eating grass-fed or regeneratively raised beef is bad also. And we we can debate the health issues all day long. I, I, I think uh, I've done that before in many other books. And we can, <laughs> as a side note, you want to read about them, fine. But but uh, in terms of, of the effect on climate, let's just sort of stick stick with that you know the way to restore soil is through the use of animals there's no way around that that's just what the science shows and so integrating animals into agriculture in a specific way that we talked about is going to help reverse climate change more than being a vegan Hmm. and and just an example the impossible burger 
which is touted as saving the planet, saving humanity, and so forth. I have a number of issues with it, and I've spoken about this. It's, it's a highly processed food. It has 47 novel proteins, meaning just new to nature, which I always worry about, whether it's a drug or a, in, you know, a genetically engineered product. And not all genetically engineered things are bad, but you know the FDA wouldn't even approve it, and they had to get a group of, quote, independent scientists that were all in Monsanto's, had <laughs> been working for Monsanto to prove it. Uh, then, they, then they switched over to GMO soy. So now the soy is grown for Impossible Burger in a monocrop field with tons of glyphosate and in ways that's destructive to the ecosystem and the environment. When you, you, know, when you look, compare it to a factory farm burger, 100% better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 10 times better, right? So let's say a factory farm burger releases 30 kilos of carbon per burger. Uh, glyphos- uh, the Impossible Burger is 3.5 kilos. So it's 10 times better. But when you look th- through the regenerative process, and this was an independent life cycle analysis done by a company called Qantas that looked at both the Impossible Burger and the White Oak Pastures Farm in, 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 the southwest, in the southeast, they found that the regeneratively raised burger, when you add in everything, methane from the cows, the whole thing, the way it affected the ecosystem, that, that removed three and a half kilos of carbon from the environment. So you'd literally have to eat one regeneratively raised beef burger to offset the carbon emissions of an impossible burger. Hmm. So I think we just have to, it, it's nuanced, you know. It I, is nuanced. And I think, I, think we, I think we should all be eating food grown in a regenerative way. That should be our aspiration. It's not possible right now, right? It's not possible because there's not enough of this around. But there are resources like Thrive Market we talked about, yeah. which offers regeneratively raised products and regeneratively raised beef. There's places like Mariposa Ranch, which you can go direct to the rancher and buy it. Eight bucks a pound, which is basically, you know, $2 for a four-ounce serving, which is probably less than a McDonald's hamburger, Right, and you can do that in, in sustainable ways. You can search out your local farmers, so you can go to farmers markets. You can join a community-supported agriculture group. You can start a community garden. You know, there's a lot of ways to yeah, do part so of this. Yeah. So, what are your immediate tips for someone listening and saying, "All right, you know, I want to do a better job of eating in a way for the for the future with regards to climate change." Yeah, I mean, I think we become regenitarians. I like that <laughs> regenitarian, and it's you know, there's a lot of you know, kind of uh, variety in that in that framework you can be plant-based you can include meat you cannot but but it's it's being aspirational to seek out your food from sources that add value back in the environment that are are taking care of animals that are are grown on those uh, pieces of land that restore ecosystems that conserve water that reduce the use of chemicals and and i think you know and what's going to result is you're going to have much better higher quality food it's more nutrient dense Mm -hmm. you're going to be healthier and the planet's going to be healthier, and the animals are happier, and everybody wins. So, so I think there, like I said, there are ways to find resources online around that. Like yeah. Thrive Market is a great resource. Mariposa Ranch. I talk about a lot of these in my book. And I think, uh, uh, you know, moving more towards you know, even choosing non-GMO, right? Just yeah. just do that alone. Uh, and, and and you know, it doesn't say uh, GMO on the label. Yeah, so you have to pick the ones and things that say non-GMO because they do so label that. I'm curious. Do you even touch corn these days? You know, uh, I probably do have corn on the cob in the summer, you know, for sure. Uh, I might. Because a lot of people will say, you know, corn's just, you know, whether it's GMO or not, it's, you know, it, it, a lot of people just say avoid it. And I, look, I, I, I love Mexican. I love guacamole. 
There's nothing I like mean, a listen, good tortilla. You know, I love siete, but you know, can't I think you know siete. the thing is the corn we eat <laughs> isn't the corn we ate, right? Sure. You know, uh, the, the, there were so many varieties of corn. They were so nutrient dense. They were full of phytochemicals, and our kind of modern corn is just so depleted. And I think you know, if we can go back to trying to eat weird food and eat heirloom food like the Himalayan tartary buckwheat, these are the more we do this, the more it's going to move the market. Right. I mean, who would have thought that? General Mills is going to invest a million. That's awesome. I remember at Expo West a year ago, they made a huge statement. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. So not not that your, you know, fruity pebbles is a healthy uh, (laughs) breakfast, but still. Well, that's why I was asking. It's like, what what should people buy? Because at the end of the day, people vote with their dollars Mm -hmm. because these companies are all public. People stop buying something. They want healthier options. They adjust. And so people are voting with their dollars and they're trying to change. Yeah, we can move the market. We can do that. And I think, you know, even the government is, uh, you know, even in this administration, they're doing things in this space. And. Uh, they, they, in fact, the the uh, I heard the deputy secretary of agriculture give a talk explaining how uh, the FDA, the EPA, and the USDA partnered together to try to end food waste and looking at a whole broad range of policies and regulations and mm-hmm. innovations and supporting innovation around food waste. And so, whether whether you want to you know just be active in your own kitchen, whether you want to have a small compost pile in your house, whether you want to have uh, a little garden in your backyard mm-hmm. or a community garden. There's so many things you can do, even being politically active locally. For example, in Massachusetts, they passed a law that didn't allow anybody who was a food company to have a, a ton of waste um, a week. So if you had a ton of waste a week, you couldn't just throw it in the garbage or the landfill. And just to back up on that, why is food waste bad? Well, we waste 40% of our food. It's about mm-hmm. a pound per person a day in America. It's about 1800 bucks for a family of four. If we had to grow all the food we wasted around the world on a piece of land, it would take the entire landmass of China, and it's a waste of $2 trillion. That's not even the worst part. The worst part is after we eat, throw it away, it turns into greenhouse gases. So it off-gasses methane when it rots in the landfills, which is 25 times more potent uh, than than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases after the U.S. and China. So don't just throw your garbage in the garbage. You know, throw your waste in a compost bucket or a pile. And you can do that. And, And in Massachusetts, they outlawed this, you know, throwing away this waste. And what that led to was was all kinds of innovation. So Vanguard Renewables partnered with local dairy farmers who were losing money, and they built these anaerobic digesters where uh, this one farm gets three tractor trailer fulls every day of food waste from Whole Foods or you know Safeway or wherever, and throws it in with some cow poop, and it turns into electricity. It literally, it literally digests it and turns into electricity for fifteen hundred homes. So the the Vanguard Renewables sends the the energy to the homes and makes money. They help the farmer build the thing. The farmer makes a hundred grand off of off of it, where he was losing money. The average farmer loses sixteen hundred dollars right. a year. So you you've got this incredible win win win, and and it's just a great innovation. And and there's only a few of these in America. Uh, in Europe, there's seventeen thousand of these anaerobic digesters. So we, we you know we have so much opportunity to work on this together. If people have awareness, if people make choices, and you can you know try to get, get an orange like they did in San Francisco, where it's mandatory composting in this in this city. Uh, you can influence your local school, like my friend Jill Shaw in My Way Cafe in Boston, where she put in real kitchens and got chefs to make great recipes that the kids would eat within the school budget, within the school nutrition guidelines and has revolutionized the schools in Boston and we're taking this nationally. There's a whole movie about it. So I think there's so much opportunity that people want to get engaged. So my last question is, is about the future. Where do you want this conversation to be a, a year from now? Where do you think we're going? 
Well, if I have anything to do with it, <laughs> I think you. I, I think you do. I think you I think do. I have anything to do with it. Uh, well, my book, Food Fix: How to Save Our Health, Our Economy, Our Communities, and Our Planet One Bite at a Time, is the beginning of a conversation and awareness building, and that's really the first part. Uh, but I've partnered with an incredible team, a bipartisan team of Washington insiders who know how to make sausage in Washington, <laughs> who reached out to me. And maybe it's vegan sausage, I don't know. But it's a <laughs> big sausage in Washington. And they reached out to me. And they, they ran the one campaign, which was essentially Bono's effort to sure. get money for AIDS and poverty relief in Africa. And he got $87 billion on $30 million of philanthropy appropriated from Congress to help. So that's what we're going for. Kind of a moonshot on this. And and we put together an incredible coalition. Uh, we had it. We, it's really historic. I mean, the, the Democrats and the, and the Republicans were sitting in a room on Monday planning this all out. And, and they know how to actually get stuff done in Washington through existing mechanisms like appropriations and budget reconciliation, all these sort of technical things. The government runs, right? It's not shut down. It works. Rather, the people say it's not working. You know, you're not having maybe big breakthrough policies, but it all can get done through these back channels in a very quiet way that have tremendous effect. And so we're focusing on food as medicine. We're focusing on infusing that through all government policies and programs throughout the country, uh, reforming dysfunctional food policies and, 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 and healthcare policies like Medicare. Why shouldn't we be paying for nutritionists or food mm-hmm. as medicine or paying for giving food to diabetics, which actually saves 80% of the cost of their healthcare, uh, and then supporting regenerative ag. So those three pillars, and we're raising money. We put together an incredible team, coalition of people. So in a year, I think this is going to be something that people will, will look back and say, okay, well, this was the moment where we actually started to, to make real progress to educate lawmakers. So our target is the 2,000 lawmakers and agency members and the White House staff that are, are, are going to actually make the decisions about this because they don't know about this. They aren't aware of this. I sat on a boat with a senator uh, this summer in a sailboat for two hours. So he was sort of stuck there. He couldn't get away. <laughs> but he was actually really interested. And we talked about this um, and his mouth was hanging open and he just didn't understand all these connections you know, between our health and the chronic disease and climate and the economic burden of it all and the social justice issues mm-hmm. and the issues around our kids' academic performance. I mean, one of the most striking things I heard recently was someone from the Obama White House said that 14 five-star generals showed up at the White House saying we have a national security crisis. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, because 70% of military recruits are rejected because they're right. overweight or unfit to fight. Um, so so we have all these things. They're not separate siloed problems. They're one problem. So when we see them as a cohesive uh, issue to deal with, then we can start to build the strategies and the tools, uh, everything from the grassroots to the policy. And that's really what, what I hope to happen in a year. So we raise all the money we need. We've, we've got all our strategic policies in place. We're educating the lawmakers and we're starting to pass legislation to start to change all of this. Amen to that. Let's do it guys. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Yeah. 